Hi, welcome to the Whole Council podcast. I'm John Snyder, and with me is Chuck Baggett, and we're looking again at a book called Salvation in Full Color, 20 Sermons by Great Awakening Preachers. We've mentioned this book before, but let me just give you kind of a refresher. These 20 sermons are laid out in a theological order. They begin with uh, sermons on the character of God and the law of God and the depravity of man. And they end with topics like the perseverance of the saints, sanctification, divine retribution, and the final warning. So there's a very specific order here. And that really is one of the great values of the book. If you get the book, Uh, or if you're listening to the podcast and you kind of jump in midstream, or if you pick one of the topics that you think is most interesting. So for instance, if you say, well, I I want to understand regeneration better, or I want to hear what this man said about repentance, and you just run right to your particular topic, then you do miss some of the benefit of the book. We are looking this week at the doctrine of divine adoption. And uh, the preacher is... John Tennant. So Chuck, can you give us uh, give us an update on who John Tennant was? Yeah, John Tennant was the third son of William Tennant, who founded the Log Cabin College in New Jersey. Um, he was born in Ireland, came to America at 12. Like his brothers, he trained for the ministry under his father. And um, he was called to a church in New Jersey in... 1730. It was a short pastorate, not because they got mad at him, but because he passed away. He died uh, at the age of 26. So short for that reason. But even though it was a short pastorate, the people were very much affected by his preaching. In fact, um, Mr. Roberts, in his little brief biography, says that his first sermon appears to have been the means of awakening several of his hearers. This sermon that we're about to look at, as well as at least one other, maybe a few others, were put together after his death, and his brother Gilbert wrote a preface, and in it he speaks about his his brother John and says that he excelled in um, the polemical. He, he was good at argumentation, which I think we can see a little bit in the outline of his sermon. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he was, he was very good at that, but he was also in in salvation, you know, marked with humility. And so those two things came together very well in his ministry so that he was able to uh, take a topic and, you know, lay it out well. And yet <clears throat> it was marked with grace and not just an argument. <laughs> mm. um, before he came to Christ, he had a, evidently a problem with anger. Um, John, or pardon me, his brother Gilbert says that it cost him many a deep sob, but when God did change him, he changed him remarkably. And this, even in this, he gained a measure of um, victory over that. Gilbert says that when he was under conviction, that the conviction was some of the greatest and most violent that he had ever seen. He says that for several days and nights, John would cry out over his sin. Oh, my poor soul. Oh, my bloody lost soul. What shall I do? Have mercy upon me, O God, for Christ's sake. And he would come to the edge of despair um, until finally God did rescue him. And he says that his conversion was a most remarkable conversion. 
When he preached, he spoke with tremendous boldness and power. Again, Gilbert says that when he preached in his public discourses, he was very awakening and terrible in denouncing and describing with the most vehement pathos and awful solemnity the terrors of an offended deity, the threats of a broken law, the miseries of a sinful state. So um, Mr. Roberts says that there are indications that his 18 months or so at the little church in Freehold bore more fruit than uh, many men see in a lifetime. Yeah, so member of a famous family yeah. in the Great Awakening. Uh, and it seems that they all had similar traits like that. Yeah. Um, you know, really known for penetrating sermons to the point that it, it offended quite a few um, leaders in the denominations in the early colonies. Yeah. Well, the sermon on adoption uh, really centers around the verse in 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And he points out a number of things. And actually the sermon is extremely precise. Uh, mm-hmm. We were joking before the podcast that he never met a subpoint he didn't like because some of the points have 10 subpoints and the subpoints have subpoints. And so it's very Puritanesque in that way, uh, you know, kind of drawing together into a sermon um, from all of the scripture and life's experiences, anything that is, uh, you know, can be included in this topic. So, you know, good and bad in that, but certainly a lot of truth here for us. Um, we'll put the uh, outline in the show notes so you can see that it's, it's pretty, it's pretty extensive. So we're actually, even in our overview of this sermon, we're not going to hit every single point. Um, but I want to run through the major points and then Chuck and I will back up and just talk about a few things that, that we think are most important. So he opens the sermon with kind of a, an, um, an introduction on what the, the basic parts of this doctrine are. And so he gives a number of points here. Number one, it is a great and honorable gift when God adopts. And he talks about being a forensic gift that's legal. And it's a gift that's openly declared, not a secret gift. Mm. And, he, and he really does a good job of calling attention to that, that that so much sweeter for the Christian to have God declare to your own conscience, but ultimately to all the universe that you are his. And it's a gift that's freely bestowed or the purest form of grace. It is also um, a gift given by God. And he spends some time on the nature of the donor the giver, the recipients, he goes over those. Well, the believer alone, those who uh, we could describe them from the human perspective, those who have embraced Christ by faith, or from the divine perspective, those who have been called. And then he talks about the cause of this action, God's love, a benevolent, beneficent love, a love of complacency. And we, there's so much there, we want to come back to a few of those. But let me go to the main parts of the sermon now. After those points of introduction, he gives particulars and he gives three particular kind of main points in the sermon, followed by a fourth point that he calls improvements. And so that's kind of the old world um, way of saying here are some applications or some further explanation. And then he's going to have what he calls uh, directives and that's applications. And so let me just kind of run through those. The three main points of the sermon are number one. 
He wants to show the nature and the kinds of adoption. Now, he gives 10 specifics here, uh, and I'm going to just read through some of those now. And this is under the first point. So adoption is a declaration. Adoption is a declaration, number two, of God. Number three, adoption is a merciful and gracious declaration. Number four, the efficient cause of adoption is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that actually causes it to occur. Number five, the instrumental cause, the tool that the Spirit uses in adoption is the Word of God. Number six, the final cause. What's the purpose of adoption? That's the glory of God. Number seven, the object of this divine adopting declaration is poor, sinful man. Number eight, the manner of our adoption. And he talks about union with Christ and he even includes their regeneration. And we're going to come back to that. Number nine, the terms of our adoption. And number 10, there are two kinds of adoption. He says there are human, uh, you know, uh, there's the human adoption and then there's divine adoption. And he contrasts those and pulls out some helpful uh, points there. Then he goes on to the second main point, the prerogatives or the privileges that the adopted children of God have. And there are a number of those. Let me just list a few. We receive an honorable name. We, we have a share in the ownership of all creation. All things are our fathers. And so if we are in Christ, then all these things are ours. Number three, he says, there is conformity to the image of Christ, to the son of God. So we can think of a family likeness uh, that is accomplished. Number four, there's a real freedom. Unlike a servant in a home that receives many privileges, the adopted child is free. And he gives the spiritual application there. Free from the guilt of sin, we're justified. Free from the dominion of sin, we're freed from its constant rule, Romans chapter 6. Free from the condemnation of the moral law. That is, Christ has set us free from the curse of the law by being made a curse for us. Free from the yoke of ceremonial law and human traditions, you know, legalism. Being brought into the family of the king, we are no longer under any sense of obligation to try to, you know, earn his love by going through all these forms and religious traditions. The third major point in the sermon, the exceeding display of God's love. And he basically shows that in four ways. He contrasts the God that adopts and the people that are adopted. But he also talks about the impulse or the cause of that. He says it's the pure and incomprehensible and eternal love of God. And then the price we are bought with the death of the son of God, the only begotten, the unique son of God gives his life that we might be adopted children of God. Now under the improvements, he gives a couple of things. First of all, he says, we ought to admire God because of this great gift. And, and I, I want to read just a quick quote from that. He says this, from what to what has God brought believers from what? a deep degree of extreme misery to what a height of dignity and glory. Oh, let us call to the admiration of our souls and to all that is within us, this blessed love, this free and undeserved love, this enriching and everlasting love. Did the angels wonder when they brought the happy tidings of this love to our world? 
that they look with admiration into these things and will not our souls. Mm. So great reminder. First use of this first way to improve this doctrine in our lives, admire him. Second, he says, it's a good use. It's a good thing, a tool in the hands for self-examination. How do we know we're children of God? Third use, he says, these realities ought to comfort every true child of God when really lived on daily. And fourth, they ought to strike terror into the heart of anyone who could hear of these things and still hold Christ at arm's length. Well, he closes the sermon. And as we said, there are just so many points. He closes the sermon with two main directions, two final applications. One, to the person who's a child of God, but often finds that they lack assurance or their assurance is weak. And so there's a lot of doubt. And he gives some very practical advice. Avoid these things and do these things. And finally, if you are assured of your adoption, he says, he gives certain things that uh, just are appropriate for that life like honoring God as a father, submitting to his authority and our obedience, confiding in him, you know, going to him as a dad, trusting him and loving those who are his children. Well, that, that's a pretty full survey, but the sermon, like we said, has a lot of sub points. So that's the, that's the overview. So maybe we can kind of pull up a few of the key points, Chuck, and just uh, go back over them. One of the points that he makes is uh, the cause of this adoption is God's love. He talks about it from three perspectives that, you know, there's the love that kind of, that plans salvation, the love that carries it out. But now where adoption really comes in is, uh, he speaks of us as, as a love of complacency, which is kind of an unusual term for us. Um, but the idea that God is at rest in his love, which is a wonderful thought that he's not, um, up and down in his love toward us, but that it is settled mm. and settled in Christ. Yeah, another word we could say. I mean, because complacency has a negative has a negative connotation. Yeah. If I say Chuck is a complacent Christian, you you would say what what is it about my life that makes you say that? But if we say God loves us with a love of complacency, we don't mean kind of a shoulder shrugging, eh, <laughs> you know, kind of indifferent, uh, you know, lack of zeal. Mm. So complacency as you said, means that the love of God is at rest or it's satisfied. It's not looking at the object of its love for any reason to continue to love it. There is a, there is a determination in the heart of God. It, his love rests satisfied with us. And he's not saying to us, uh, John or Chuck, I would like for you to do certain things today if you want to maintain this kind of family love. Um, well, we have a couple of great examples of that. Let me give you one. And then Chuck, you can throw in one. One is Christ and particularly what Christ says in John 15. And the other is human adoption. I mean, that really does give us a pale, but good picture of what, of what God's saying in John chapter 15, when Christ is about to leave the disciples, you know, in these chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, and in the prayer of chapter 17, these are really one writer called them the inner sanctuary. These are the holy of holy chapters with Christ and his people saying things that only apply to his people. And he says to them in the same way that the father has loved me, even so I have loved you. And then he talks about how that would affect their life, obedience, abiding in that love. But let's just take that phrase, ask ourselves, how did the father love the perfect son of God? And one thing that 
immediately jumps out is he never loved the son with the love of mercy and forgiveness. The son never required that. We require that. We want pity and mercy and, and grace. We want undeserved love, but not Christ. So the love that the father had for the son is this is the term that you just mentioned. The old writers gave it this description, complacency. The father looked on the son with complete satisfaction, delight, joy. And that's the kind of love that we understand comes in this great work of adoption. Yeah, so the, the other illustration that does pale in comparison, for sure, is uh, the love of human adoption. Or, or back up, <clears throat> it is human adoption. And we have adopted a couple of little boys as well as having children by birth. Um, and in adoption, there is the legal declaration, and it's settled you know, these are your children now. They have your name and you promised to take care of them and, and they are um, to inherit from you like your other children, et cetera. All of that is kind of taken care of in the courtroom setting. Mm. But also in that, you could do that, I suppose, for reasons of, of just pity. But there's also, I would hope, there's reasons of love and that love is settled there. I have determined to love this child. And so for those reasons... I've taken him into my home and given him my name, et cetera. And that's, I don't know that a kid ever looks at adoption that way, especially when they're small and thinks, you know, okay, dad went to court and did these things. And so his love is settled. Uh, but as a parent, you would hope so. Yeah. And that brings us to another one of the points we wanted to mention. Is the term adoption referring primarily to a legal change or a moral change? Um, so uh, he actually throws in an element that I think, um, and when we discussed this earlier before the podcast, uh, that really doesn't, strictly speaking, fit with adoption, but it's fine to throw it in there. And I think the reason he throws it in there, he, he wants to guard us against an abuse, and we'll talk about that. But so when we talk about earthly adoption, uh, we can see this reflected there. When you adopted the boys, their legal status completely changed. They were yours and you're theirs legally. And that's not going to shift. But there was not a moral change. You didn't say to the boys. Now, as, as we're walking into a courtroom, your moral character in the hallway was one way. But as soon as that judge says, okay, this is done. And we sign on the dotted line. We expect you to begin to act like us. So while as, as, a, as adoptive parents, and we have an adopted daughter, uh, we do hope that our children pick up on the better parts of us, you know, not all of us, but, you know, the things we value, we want them to value. We want them to love the Lord we love if they don't already, you know, you, you got the boys very young. And so they've been watching you and, and they listen to you and to Elizabeth. And so you want to see that happen. But that moral change, that's really up to the Lord. And, and that comes with time, you know, as they're molded into your image to some degree. But adoption is primarily a legal shift. Yes. And um, while we desire that they take on certain qualities or that they grow to love the Lord, the sad reality of human adoption is you cannot guarantee that or make them to do that. You have hopes, but you know, you, you parent to the best of your ability. You pray to the Lord, 
but you can't make them. One of the wonderful things about God's adoption is that he does see to it that his children all grow up into the likeness of Christ. And there is a moral change. Even though adoption is not strictly, as you're saying, a moral change, but a legal change, God does see to it that that does occur. Go ahead. Sorry. I was also going to mention in the idea of complacency, when we say that he's complacent in his love, it is that he is settled in his love for you because of Christ. But it does not mean that he now has no expectations, which is back to the moral part. Um, he does have expectations. There's the expectation of obedience. Mm. And he's pleased with obedience. He's grieved by disobedience. But the obedience or disobedience does not change the nature of the relationship, which is the complacency again, right? Yeah. So the, the legal nature of this, I think, makes that very clear. Uh, your sons are your sons now legally. And that's been declared a legal reality. And when they disobey you, it grieves you. And they may be disciplined or they may really please you with their behavior as you see them trying to respond in, in childlike ways, showing love to, you know, to others. And so you're pleased. But whether they're having bad days and you're having a bad day <laughs> or whether they're having good days, they are your sons. And I think the, that, that great application of that for us is there is a solid foundation to our understanding of our relationship with God. Much like their idea of covenant, we have a relationship with God, but it is established in, in a covenant contract. So I think, you know, the benefit of that is though my faith goes up and down, I know that there is a, a legal, in a sense, a legal construct here. There's a document here in God's mind that says I can't be removed. Um, one one thing that people might ask is, well, if you say that God delights in us and is satisfied with us as we are, you know, you think just as I am without one plea. Okay. Because of Christ's finished work, would that remove the greatest motivator to holiness? I have to be holy because I want God to keep loving me. What would you say to that? I would say no, because the father's love is the great motivator and it's not the fact that he loves me that removes the motivation. It adds the motivation. Yeah. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Christ says, but we read in first John, we only love him because he first loved us. So there is that wonderful dynamic and unbreakable connection between our awareness of God's love for us and our love stirred toward him and our love being demonstrated in obedience and not just sentiment. Um, when we think of the legal and moral changes that happen, so if you, if a person says, I am a child of God, immediately we might think, well, do you mean like you are in the family of God or do you mean like you are being molded into the image of that family? You, you have a family likeness. I mean, because both of those are biblical, but there are different words the Bible uses for those. And that's why we feel that it, it's okay to discuss them separately. When we think of the moral changes your boys becoming more and more like their brothers and sister, more like you and Elizabeth. Um, that change, you know, in the spiritual realm, that's described by regeneration. That's accomplished by regeneration and sanctification. Those are the moral changes. I am being made differently within. Mm -hmm. I am thinking and desiring differently. The legal change of adoption is more akin to justification. God has done something on my behalf that I did not contribute to something for me. Christ for me resulted in 
a great declaration. They are right with me, justified, and they are my family. Uh, as a friend of ours has said, uh, Andrew Davis, in a sermon at Christ Church once said, in God dealing with us like this, we are brought out of the courtroom into the family room. Mm. And that's just a really simple way of seeing it. Another point that Tennant makes that's worth taking some time to discuss is the differences in motives between God's adopting, a motive for God adopting, and the motives that humans often have for adopting. In one, we often see a selfishness or self-serving reasons, mm -hmm. but not, not so in God. Yeah, so basic reasons for adoption. One often is that a couple is not able to conceive, and so they want to have children, so they, they take the route of adoption, which is a very good thing. I mean, we're, we're not saying that that's a bad motive, but is that a motive that is in some way a mirror of God's motives? And the answer is certainly not. There is always the temptation when we think of love from our perspective, because our love is, off, is almost always motivated by something lovely. I, I think that's a lovely thing. That's a lovely person. So I love it. I value it for a certain reason. But with the unconditional love of God, it is just so hard for us to believe that this immense lavishness, that this extraordinary redemptive plan that spans from eternity past to eternity future, that that is solely to give and give and give that we might see what kind of a God he is. He is not adopting because he's lonely. He did not create because he was lonely. So what Tennant says basically is this, none of these choices take adoption, for example. The, this was not chosen by God because he lacked. It was chosen because of the overflow of this infinite you know, perfection in God. And he delighted to express it in this way. So it's not that he doesn't have children and he wants children. Another possibility, sometimes a grandparent ends up raising a child because their child is not able to raise the grandchild. Yeah. And so it's not that they wanted more children as much as responsibility thrust upon them. Mm -hmm. um, and no one is forcing God's hand either. He has freely chosen to adopt. Yeah, if you view the work of God in salvation as in any measure somewhat thrust upon him, like, well, you're obligated. You created us and look at the mess we're in. So don't you owe us a little help? Well, no, uh, as we're going to talk about later, when we look at what the Bible says about those that are adopted, one of the things the Bible says is that we were all in the camp of his enemy. And this is an infinitely pure God. It's not an emotional thing. It's that there is no claim that we could place upon God having rejected him and, and our, and our representative Adam. Another way that human adoption is often, not always, but often very different than divine adoption is that w sometimes we might have kind of, um, so we have a desire to adopt and we do it for maybe for mercy or maybe because we can't have children. So we, we would like to have children in our family. Uh, but sometimes even with our most noble motives, there may be kind of an unspoken list of preferences mm. where we say there are certain things in children that I like and, and, and I appreciate. And there are some things I, I don't want. I mean, oftentimes uh, adoption agencies have a hard time getting older children adopted because people say, well, I would really prefer an infant. Well, 
So your preferences, you know, why? And so there, there are these unspoken reasons. Sure. And so this is more attractive to me. But when we speak of God choosing to adopt his enemies through the wonderful work of Christ, every one of them were ugly children, broken, diseased, uh, you know, children that didn't even want to be adopted, that, that were obnoxious. And, you know, we must not think that God chose to be merciful and to adopt me because there was something about me that was a little more attractive than Joe over here. Yeah. One of the reasons I think sometimes people want a, a smaller child, perhaps, rather than an older child, is they think they're avoiding some problems. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you inherit whatever problems that child has if they're older. Mm -hmm. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God yeah. demonstrates his love this way. So um, he didn't avoid any of the problems. Yeah, really, just quite an opposite there. Yeah. Another point we wanted to emphasize was the, uh, the display of God's love is particularly seen here. That He calls it the exceeding display. Um, and he gives a number of points, but let's just, let's just use two of them to contrast the adopter and the adopted. Now, I, I didn't run through all those when we introduced it. So let me just kind of run through those and, um, and then we can talk about it. He talks about the adopter, God, the person who adopts. He is the king of majesty. And he says, now think about that. No one can approach him. No angel, no man, no woman. And yet he is the adopter. He is sovereign. He could have created a completely new unstained race, but instead he desires to adopt from a ruined family, from Adam's fallen race. He is self-sufficient, infinitely self-sufficient, satisfied and happy in himself. And no child he adopts is ever adding to him. God is not being benefited by us. He is just and holy. How can a God that cannot look on sin with pleasure, seek out with infinite love the sinner mm. to make that person his family. So, so that was God's love, a, a description of it. But then think about the persons that he loves, the character of the persons that he loves. We are a people that uh, Tennant describes as being frail, incapable of doing anything to earn a spot in this family. It, you know, you've, we've already talked about uh, parents, you know, kind of choosing this child rather than that child because of what we see in that child. But God doesn't do that. And we can't put ourselves forward and say, hey, oh God, look at me, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and and kind of like little orphan Annie, you know, song and dance to try to say me. Um, we're poor. We have, you know, we don't bring... Um, riches with us or, or anything else to, to contribute. We are deformed. Um, there's no outward beauty. We're diseased. And we have an active animosity toward God. We're described as his enemies. And these are the people that he sets his love upon and adopts. Yeah, it's easy to read through a list like this. And I, I think of like in our present situation. Okay, so we're doing a podcast on uh, on the theological topic of adoption. And we have certain biblical things that are clear, and then we have some applications we can give. But you know, I mean, this is a nice a nice topic, and we're we're well behaved, and we can run through this list um, and say them, and everything that we say might be accurate, but it's a very different thing 
when, you know, there are those times, even in the Christian's life, where God seems to pull back the curtain and allow you to see the depths of sin that you are still capable of and how ugly it is. Um, and, and, and it seems much worse now that you're a Christian mm. than before, you know, because you think, but I, I've done, I've thought those things and said those things and harbored those things against him, my father, not against this foreign king. So I think it's, it really is wonderful to take these things and say, well, these are true. But then there are those times in the life where these are not just true. These are life and death, you know, and, and it's almost as if you want to bring this list back to God and say, is it really true? Hmm. You know, is it true for me? I would say the one that jumps out at me as showing the, the most exceeding display of God's love is when he describes the deformity of humanity, that I am spiritually without anything that would attract God. But that's, that's too bland a way of saying it. It's not just that I don't, John Snyder didn't have anything particularly special. It's that everything about me, if we think of a child, he says, you know, their life, there's a disease, a, a leprosy running throughout their, their body. You know, imagine, you know, every undesirable thing packed into one child and your heart might go out to them, but you think, but I, I just don't want that. And God seems to love to, to show his superior worth by seeking out the worst, you know, and Paul talks about that, you know, that God might be demonstrated to be so gracious and glorious, but he saves the worst of sinners. And we are not just people that aren't perfect. We are thoroughly deformed apart from Christ. Yeah, I think uh, the one of those that that um, I don't know if the word is grips. <laughs> the one that that I've noticed here in this list is animosity. We are deformed and ugly and all of that, but it's, we also are actively hostile to God. Colossians, you know, our minds are hostile to him. We are enemies to him. So I, I think of, you know, a little kid and you go maybe to the adoption agency and you look at the kids and, and there's the, you know, the one that's really cute and everything, but then you've got the one that's screaming and hitting and kicking and biting and spitting at you. Mm. And, you know, there's this active uh, determination to destroy and hurt and everything that God finds lovely, we hate. And everything that he hates, that's what we want. And he loves us then. Yeah, it, with the illustrations of the, you know, of deformity and animosity, you can still pity deformity. Mm. Um, you can say this, I don't know if we can, I don't know if we're up to helping this child. Like, you know, are we adequate for that task? There's so many needs, physical needs. But like you said, that, that does pale in comparison to the moral ugliness that we actually rage against him as he brings his kindness to us, you know, and he has to conquer us, yeah. not just our enemies. But it's a wonderful thing that he's able to do that. You know, um, there are children, you, you adopted maybe a baby and you love that child. And for whatever reason, they grow up with a distrust of you. They know they're adopted and, you know, they're sure that their birth parent wanted them and you somehow stole them away. Mm. And their whole life is, is kind of raging against you. Maybe it's under the surface, but 
They're distrustful. But God is able to actually change us and, as you say, conquer us. And all of his children are willing. And he is changing us to love him more and more. Yeah, wonderful picture. Well, let's come down to the last um, couple of applications. Um, What if you are a child of God, but you lack assurance? That's a common theme uh, for pastors. Well, I I think I'm a Christian, but sometimes I just, I look at my life and could a Christian think that thought? Could a Christian have had that response? So maybe I'm not a Christian at all. And Tennant gives a, a number of very practical suggestions. So let me just read through these. First, he says, as to the things that you should avoid during these kinds of times of doubt. Number one, beware of gross sins against the light in your minds, for God is engaged to correct his wandering children. Those sins grieve the spirit and hinder his sealing work. Those sins bring spiritual desertions and cause us to mourn with David like we see in Psalm 51. So that's an old style way of saying If you're struggling with doubt, do not allow that period of doubt to to attempt you to go into willful sin, where you sin against your conscience, you sin against the light that God has given you. That will just make things worse. You know, it clouds, it just clouds the issue of your relationship with God. It grieves the spirit. There's that loss of the sense that you might have had even then uh, of God's pleasure And, you know, and, you know, in a sense, it just drives you further from the source of assurance. Yeah. Uh, Second one, beware of the neglect of secret prayer. Now, I think the reason that this is a helpful list, because these are the exact things that we feel tempted to do. If I'm not sure that God loves me as a father would love a child, if he's a perfect father, do I really want to risk getting close to him? and just laying my heart open to him in prayer. What if he doesn't even hear me? You know, I mean, so all those, I I personally, I mean, I found, I find doubt to be a very prayer killing disease. You know, why even try? Mm -hmm. Third, beware of sloth, of laziness. This is not a time for despair to paralyze your activity as a Christian. So press on. Number four, beware of pride. Um, and and I, I wonder why he puts that in the list. And I, I wonder if it's because, you know, there is a sense of entitlement that we have as sinful people. And if, if God doesn't seem to be giving me what I feel I deserve, I, I should have assurance, you know, I shouldn't have to even ask this question. You know, why do I have the kind of a, a personality that tends toward this melancholy? Why, why is this my problem? Other people don't have it. And it is easy then in a, a false sense of entitlement to kind of in arrogance become embittered hmm. and feel like God isn't treating you right. And self-despair is a kind of pride. Yeah, it? it really is. It's pride turned on its head, you know. Well, the things he says next, these are things that you should do. The exercise of faith in Christ, that being united to him, by the help of union with him, we may obtain sonship. And to this end, we must use all the means that increased faith, such as the word, prayer, sacraments, and spiritual fellowship. In other words, if 
a living connection with Jesus, the only begotten, is the source of our spiritual adoption. Then when you are weak in your awareness of your spiritual adoption, make use of every tool God has put in your hands to cling all the more closer to Christ, you know, to get those facts into your head, to get the heart melted again. Mm-hmm. Next, he says, make sure that you exercise repentance for sins of infirmity. What do you think that means, Chuck? Exercise repentance for sins of infirmity. Well, by infirmity, I would think weakness. So sins that you're particularly susceptible to and become habitual, maybe? Yeah, maybe not sins that you've like, you you say, okay, fine, and you willingly go and do. But sins that, you know, yeah, like because of, so let's say a person has a melancholy temperament. So they are going to be more naturally tempted to despair and, and lack of assurance might accompany that. So bring that to the Lord and repent that I allow a temperament to produce this kind of response in me. You know, I, I, so God, even though this isn't a sin where I'm saying, I want, I want all that sin offers, you know, but a lack of trust, that's a sin, Hmm. a a coldness, uh, a willingness to doubt him so quickly. You know, those are all sinful responses. And don't forget that those need to be turned away from. And finally, do nothing to lessen the work of the spirit within you, but be thankful for the smallest discoveries of your father's face. Um, Keep your heart responsive and tender toward God and be grateful for even the smallest, you know, in a sense, uh, expressions of God's familial love. Well, the last application is he says, this is a good tool to examine yourself if to tell, am I really a Christian or not? So Chuck, my question would be, why do you think he says that all this stuff about adoption can be used to examine our spiritual state before the Lord? Because the things that he's saying should be true of those who are adopted. If they're not true of you, then you would have reason to to question if you're adopted or not, you know, are, is there a growing family resemblance? Is Do you own God as your father? Is he making you a willing child? Yeah, I, I think that is exactly what he's saying. When, when the Bible gives us a list of privileges that we can expect through divine adoption, we want to ask ourselves, which of these privileges do we see in our life? Am I living on these privileges? Are these life to me? Or are these just like nice theological concepts that I hear about in church? Um, so let's take your boys again. All right. So if we see them in at church or, you know, at, you know, on the soccer field and they don't have anything that I would expect that Chuck Baggett's children would have. Um, that your other children that, you know, we grew up as friends and, you know, we knew each other before we were, we were married to our wives and had children. So I, I see these things that, okay, Chuck's other kids have this. And then I see these two boys. What if they don't have anything? I would ask myself, are these really Chuck's kids? Mm-hmm. Or are these just kids that he's been nice to occasionally? 
But when I look and I see, okay, so they have all the physical things they need. Uh, they also have the comfort they need. They have the occasional, you know, rebuke they need. Uh, they, they have your involvement in their life. And when I see these evidences in them, I think these are Chuck's kids, you know. But if we claim to be children of a living God by glorious adoption, as well as by a new birth, we ought to be able to point out, not because we're such great kids, but because he's such a great father. Here are some of the ways that you can see. I really am who I say I am. See the father's work in me. So great test for us. And really uh, quite a sweet test to give. You know, it's definitely not a bitter test. Sure. Well, thanks for joining us again for the whole council podcast, Salvation in Full Color, a really good book, not an easy book at times. Sometimes it takes some uh, determination to study these great truths, but it will prove well worth your time. And you can find this book in the show notes. Uh, Well, next week, we will look at the doctrine of conversion, uh, being turned to God by a man named John Blaine.